Welcome to Who, What, Where with Hillary Kerr, your direct line to the designers, stylists, beauty experts, editors, and tastemakers who are shaping the ever-evolving world of fashion. I'm your host, Hillary Kerr, and today I'm joined by journalist Maggie Bullock, who's here to talk about her new book, The Kingdom of Prep, the inside story of the rise and near fall of J. Crew. After starting her career in the beauty department of Vogue, Maggie went on to spend 13 years at Elle, where she was most recently deputy editor. Now, in addition to being the co-founder of one of my favorite newsletters ever, it's called The Spread, it's on Substack, and you should subscribe immediately. She's also written an incredible book. The Kingdom of Prep is delicious, and Maggie shares the definitive history of J. Crew, including all of its juicy internal politics, the backstory of larger-than-life characters like Mickey Drexler and Jenna Lyons, plus the history of the subculture of prep and its place in the American psyche. It's all coming up on Who, What, Where. First of all, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk about your brand new book, which is called The Kingdom of Prep, The Inside Story of the Rise and Near Fall of J. Crew, and can't wait for us to talk about it today. So this book started with a story that you wrote for Vanity Fair on J. Crew that came out in the summer of 2019. I remember reading that article. I recently reread it to refresh myself for this interview. I loved it. I feel like it's really interesting reading it then when it came out and reading it today, given the current climate and state of J. Crew and how much it's blossoming again. But I'm curious if you can walk me through a little bit about the backstory on that article and how it led you to a book. It was a surprise to everyone involved, Hillary. (laughs) So I would say that the story of that article is neatly summed up by the title of the article, which was J-Who, which I cannot take credit for. That was my brilliant editor, Claire. At the time, the company was just lost, right? It had been mm-hmm. this sort of unimpeachable American brand during the Obama era, and then it had really held that status for a long time. But by 2019, when I wrote that story, it was, remember when you would go in and everything seemed to be like on a fire sale and yes. you'd be like, what is this random assortment of stuff? Like what happened to this brand that was once so clearly like in lockstep? J. Crew for years had the tightest branding and image and you just knew exactly what it was. You knew exactly what you would find there. And yet they kept surprising you like they did it right. And there was a point at which none of those things were happening. And it was Even to a consumer who was not following the business pages, it was very obvious that something had gone terribly awry at this brand because you didn't want anything when you went into the store. So that was my assignment to like dig into that. They had recently been through major upheavals in these longtime executives who will be familiar to many of your listeners. Mickey Drexler had left. He was the longtime CEO. Jenna Lyons had left. Mm -hmm. She was the avatar of J. Crew in addition to being like its creative drive. But in the course of reporting that, I was like, oh, there's so much more of this story. So skip to the J. Crew story comes out. I'm having margaritas socially with a woman who happens to be a book publicist. We're just trying to be friends. And she's like, that sounds like a book. And I'm like, 
No, it doesn't. Does it? And that's how this whole thing started. So obviously, as the title suggests, you talk about some of the highs as well as some of the lows at J. Crew, And there is so much in-depth reporting around those notable players that you just mentioned, then CEO Mickey Drexler and Jenna Lyons, who was, as you said, the avatar for J. Crew and certainly the head of creative. What do you think was most interesting or most unexpected about their relationship and also how it played into the larger history and myth of J. Crew? Well, as I started looking at J. Crew as like this one long story, as opposed to like the piece of it that we all already knew, to me, there were interesting parallels between the founding father daughter duo, who was like this older man, younger woman. She was the sort of human embodiment of the brand, which I'm talking about Arthur and Emily Senator, who started the brand. She drove the aesthetics, he ran the business. He was a very peculiar character. She was very particular in her own way. And I think all of those things are true of Mickey and Jenna roughly 20 years later when they ran it together, although Jenna had been there since 1990. And so I think that there was perhaps a father-daughter element to the Mickey and Jenna relationship. And people compare them to like the greatest duos in business because she was driving the creative and he was driving the business and they seem to be like yin yang, yin yang. My own personal <laughs> theory is that they're more like yin yin, that they had a lot of similarities and that actually maybe that's what led to some of the problems that developed later. Because I think in fact, they're both super creative. They both kind of need guardrails and no one's giving them to them. They both kind of like attention. They both had pretty bruising childhoods and rose to like really reinvent themselves in this like cinematic, I thought, way. I think that Mickey saw himself in the young Jenna, this like real striver and real person with vision. And then also like working with Mickey, he's such a particular character and you know he's just like a mile a minute type of a guy and everybody found that jenna was able to like keep up with him for many years she was known as the mickey whisperer quote unquote mm -hmm. in the office like the person who could get her way but also like really kind of work around him i don't mean that in a bad way i mean every boss needs a whisperer right and she was that person mm -hmm. i think that that dynamic changed obviously over time and when the company's fortunes began to turn, like after maybe 2014, 2015, Jenna kept getting more and more and more famous in her own right, not really as an avatar of J. Crew anymore. And there was a point at which J. Crew was stumbling and Jenna was soaring higher than ever, at least publicly. Mm -hmm. And then I think she would go into the office and be in this like beleaguered company, you know? There was like a real disconnect between what was happening outside the company and what was happening inside the company. And I think that kind of dynamic would be toxic for any duo. It's interesting to hear you frame it in this way, because that was one thing that came through to me when I was reading it, is that we are doing everyone a disservice by thinking of them as like business and creative, that she is much more business minded than mm -hmm. folks give her credit for, and that he's much more creative than we tend to associate with someone who is a CEO, and that they both have that duality that worked really well together for many, many years. 
Truly, yes. People say that early in Mickey's career, like the thing that made him such a great merchant is that he had an eye. It wasn't mm-hmm. like something on a spreadsheet. It was like he had an <laughs> eye and a gut feeling and he could see a style coming 50 miles out and identify it and bet big on it. Like he had a notion of what was happening in the culture, like this weird gut sense of what people were really going to want. And that's not a business school tool. That is like gut and creativity. And you can't teach it. And she talked about that, too, in the book at some point where she said, you know, like a certain point when there were analysts and people coming in and looking at the data of everything. And she was saying, like, a lot of this is my gut. You can't quantify it in the same way. Right, right. And that's the hard part about retail in particular and certainly this business. It's that you need folks who have that gut feeling, which Mm -hmm. they both did. But then it also greatly helps when you can hedge those bets with some data. So it's like you kind of need a little bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. But to that point, that leads me to my next question, which is there is such an extensive and amazing amount of research in this book. I could feast on all of these little details. It's so juicy and delicious. Also, the reporter in me looks at him like, oh, my God, this is such an insane amount of work getting all of those details. What was that part of the process like for you? And how long did it take? Because, I mean, it is extensive. Oh, my God, you're so nice. Thank you. It was hard work. But I always (laughs) think of it as closely mirroring the global pandemic, because the timing on this for me in my own life was just uncanny. I sold the book proposal in late January 2020. Wow. And then there was like a month that my family went on vacation. While we were on vacation, everything shut down and I had to start the biggest project of my career. And then the book is out March 2023, and that's exactly three years. So I would say two of those years were spent writing, researching, revising with some little breaks in the middle. I basically did it in two hunks because J. Crew is two hunks. Like there's the era of the founders from 1983 to roughly a little after 2000. And then there's the era of Jenna and Mickey that takes you up to, you know, 2017 and a little bit beyond. So I tried to like report for six months, write for six months, report for six months, write for six months, and then re-report. You know, it's never as clean as that. But it was a lot of conversations I spoke with about 100 people. Some of those people were industry experts and photographers, and they didn't all work for J. Crew, but a lot of them did. And one of the most interesting things in the process was that it was really like peeling back the onion, because when you're reporting on something that happened in a pre-LinkedIn world, it's actually really hard to figure out who worked there. Yeah. You know, like who started it? Some of the people are no longer with us. Most of them are way, way, way under the radar. In fact, almost all of them. So it would just be like a daisy chain. Like one person would remember somebody was there before them who would remember somebody was there before them. And there was a little bit of a beautiful mind thing happening in my office. I was like, I'm not solving a crime. It's a book about J. Crew, for God's sake. What is with the red twine? But it took a long time to like get back to those earliest days. Actually, I had to report backwards, you know? That makes sense. I'm also curious about 
getting some of those interviews and specifically how challenging certain things were, how open people were. For example, when I spoke with Amy O'Dell about her book, Anna, she said like she was hitting all of these walls. And then there was a moment when it was clear Anna knew what was afoot and then started sending her people and then doors opened and then suddenly people were talking. I'm wondering if you had sort of a green light moment like that, or if it was all pushing a boulder up a mountain, or if it was just an open door with everyone comfortable being on the record and willing to sit down and talk. I mean, candidly, it was not an open door, but by one of a founding member of the company, I was given a list of early people. And I think similar situation to what you're talking about with Amy, where if that person was telling me to reach out to them, they felt safe talking to me. I would say that the fact that Mickey and Jenna are still very much in the fashion world exerting their force made it harder to get people from their era to talk to me, you know, especially because this is not a coffee table book, you know, and J. Crew is not footing the bill. I'm trying to report on the good and the bad. So listen, the vast majority of people were happy to tell me their stories on background. That's just how it is. And what does on background mean for our audience who might not know? So on background means that I can use the information that they share with me and it can be fact-checked and it's recorded and transcribed, but I'm not allowed to say where I got the information from, which is how a lot of these stories work because nobody's going to tell you about the day that they were crying in the bathroom if they think their former boss is going to know they're the ones who told that story. (laughs) So people were willing to talk on background. Was it harder to get people to talk on the record or... I mean, I don't know. There was a mix. I would say, you know, more sensitive details people are more willing to share on background. I also had, whether you consider it a strike against me or not, the fact that the J. Crew story had already come out in Vanity Fair did not open a lot of doors because (laughs) a lot of people were like, oh, you're going to tell the good stuff and the bad stuff. Like they Mm -hmm. knew from the outset where my head was because there was already evidence of that. And fair enough. It is where my head was. I wanted to tell an unvarnished story. However, I really think what you ended up with is if not a love letter, like the detail that I go into and how they constructed this brand is told with a lot of admiration. Yeah. And let me say this. There are four major characters in the book, the founding father and daughter and Jenna and Mickey. Arthur Senator sadly passed away. Jenna spoke with me for the book. And the other two, I think what I can say is I got very close to people who are very close to them and their points of view are well conveyed in the final product. I also love the fact that you got so many of these really vivid details of what the corporate culture was like, especially as it changed and then very specifically during the Mickey Jenna years. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the culture during this era and now with your own personal distance and for everyone having some remove from it, when people look back, how do they think of those years? For those who don't know, in the J. Crew offices under Mickey Drexler, there was an intercom system that was a little <laughs> bit like 
the PA system in your grade school where your principal would give the morning announcements or tell you who <laughs> had to go to detention. And he had it installed within hours of starting at the company. And Jenna has said that the day she went in to meet him, they were already running the wire for that when she got there. So he walked in with that plan. And the way that it functioned was like every employee of J. Crew was like living inside of Mickey Drexler's head. And he would not just use that to be like, can we have a meeting of the marketing team? He would be like, this is the song on my iPod, given the time that I'm listening to, yeah. or a customer just wrote to me and she said this and like reading the announcement or I'm on 77th and Park or wherever that store was and I'm talking to the sales associate and I want to tell everybody in the entire company what the sales associate just, I mean, I spoke with a girl who was the sales associate. She was like a summer employee, right? And she's like, who's this man who just came up to me in the store and is squawking into his cell phone <laughs> and only later did she figure out that the cell phone was piped into the whole corporation. So it's eccentric. In terms of how people felt about the corporate culture, it really depends on the person because that is wildly disruptive. And if you have to get anything done, it's crazy making, you know? But on the other hand, when Mickey joined the company, they were in the gutter. I mean, they were really in dire straits. The investors who own most of the company at that point had come close to just throwing in the towel. They thought J. Crew was almost unsalvageable. And within, I think, three years, Mickey took it public. So he landed at this company from the Gap, which was at that point like a beyond huge thing. So J. Crew, from his perspective, was this like tiny, malleable little company where he could do something like that. Like the Gap was so big, you could never have done that. And also Mickey had never not had a boss before and he came to J crew and he didn't have a boss and he was the ultimate boss and he wanted every single person there in his brain stream at all times. It was either highly, highly annoying, disruptive, and even insulting, or it was like genius and very effective and the critical key to his turnaround of the company. It's just so interesting to me because it is very like startup-y and, you know, the quirks of a founder that everyone just goes along with those whims and it's a sign of their eccentric genius. And we have all become very chill with a CEO doing bizarre totally. things as long as the company is thriving. But A, he wasn't a founder. B, it wasn't a startup. And C, that was highly unusual at that time. Also, I think to have such direct communication yeah. because it was always in corporate culture, certainly up until that point and certainly most places that I've ever heard of, like it was very like top down, like through proper channels. Everything is run through HR before it's communicated wide. So like, I mean, that's really shaking things up in such a major way. Mm -hmm. So he was also really famous for this notion of buy-in or internal crowdsourcing within the company. Jenna spoke about this when she came to do Second Life on our other podcast. And again, there could be some mixed feelings about that. It could feel mm -hmm. like an interrogation. I'm sure it was super intimidating. Can you talk a little bit about that habit and yeah. the ways that folks interpreted it? Sure. So Mickey didn't believe in 
corporate focus grouping, right? Instead, his idea of a focus group was anywhere he went, whether he was having breakfast at a cafe or he was in a J. Crew store, or he was in a meeting, everywhere he went, he was asking people's opinion. Literally, the man would walk up to you in a J. Crew store and hold up a sweater and be like, what do you think this is worth? The thing that always gets me is that he really didn't bother to like introduce himself often. He would just like launch in, descend on a customer with a question. And so a person I spoke with for the book called this like the Socratic method of leadership, right? It's just like constant questioning. And a lot of it had to do with the value of the clothes. How much would you pay for this dress? Would you go a little higher? What would make you go a little higher? Like those kind of questions. And then making decisions in that way. It gave him the reputation for being wildly democratic. If he liked an idea from the mailroom guy, he could run with it and turn it into a million dollar business. Though, like his critics who have worked for him would say that he was the king of asking the question, but he wasn't always the king of listening to the answer. Mm. That's A. And B is that, I think, as you alluded to before, it gave some people this anxiety that they could be called on in class at any moment. Yeah. Like the speaker in the office, it's all about keeping people on their toes and like to a degree on edge, right? You can never relax because, you know, you might be the next one in the spotlight. And it also, it's just like, it's hazing in some ways. It's, yes, You know, it is. like to your point, to always have people feel like they have to be on their toes and you might always have to have an answer. That would be very nerve wracking. And it would, I would imagine, lead to a culling of the people who work there because if that was not your vibe, that would be enough to make you leave. But then you're just going to have a group of people who are super diehard and really believe in you. And that's often easier to lead for better or for worse. That's so true of J. Crew. And what's interesting is that it was true twice. It was true in the 80s and 90s under the cult-like leadership of the original founders. And it was true again under Mickey and Jenna. It was very much like if it works for you, you stay forever. You're diehard. You live, eat, and breathe this brand. And if it doesn't work for you, the door is always revolving. These are very polarizing behaviors. They don't work for everybody. People that they work for, it's like they're hooked. I feel like there's some attachment theory going on here, yeah. too. <laughs> so obviously, J. Crew has had several really big peaks over the years, but then also things became a little bit rockier around 2016, 2017. Right. How did things start changing at that moment in time? And what were sort of the ramifications of that? So when the Michelle Obama thing hit, or that era of J. Crew hit, yeah. because that was when every member of the Obama nuclear family wore something J. Crew to his initial inauguration or that night. And that really like changed J. Crew's place in like this echelon of society. It was not a spreadsheet idea. It was a totally organic concept that came out of Jenna's personal style, working with other people on the brand and like really kind of developing an idea that felt deeply personal in a way. What I'm talking about there, at least in the women's wear, is like the sparkles and the pencil skirts and kind of like that ladylike dressing. But after a while, like anything else in fashion, it started to lose its luster. It wasn't new anymore. There was a point at which I remember it so clearly. If you bought a J. Crew dress that looked like a J. Crew dress, you were definitely going to run into 14 different women in Manhattan in a day who were all wearing the same dress. Do you remember that? Yes. 
I mean, like I for one stopped buying the clothes at that point because I didn't want to see myself coming and going. Yes. So it just had aged out and they hadn't figured out what the next thing was. And at the same time, Mickey had saddled them with an enormous amount of debt. So, I mean, if we're really simplifying what happened, I think that the look had gone south. The profits were sinking because the look had gone south. The customers were unhappy with the brand and starting to be very vocal about that and having a lot of complaints about quality. And at the same time, J. Crew had no margin for error because they had gone private in this very large financial deal that had left them saddled with debt. They could not service that amount of debt and sell this amount of clothing. And in order to survive, they were raising the prices on the goods, which was just making the customer even more unhappy. And I think the other part too, it's like a lot of those choices were styling choices that other brands could replicate, right? You touched on that in the book. And, you know, like there's no secret sauce to a bright lip styled with a denim jacket and a fancy sequin skirt. Right. These are not the atomic codes. Like after a few (laughs) years, other brands were more than able to bite off of what J. Crew was serving and also even to hire many of the same like models, photographers, like they were paying people a lot of money who made the look for J. Crew to go over and make the look for X, Y, and Z. Yep. And for anybody working at J. Crew in that time, it was bruising to say the least because they had really been riding high. So to walk out of their office and see their competitors like windows full of their look while internally they're really starting to stress like what is next and we don't know and we know that we don't know. Like oof, things were getting dicey. And then I'm sure it probably didn't help as well. Like in any business situation, there are power dynamics at foot. And especially when you think about how bright the light was around Jenna. And, Mm -hmm. you know, here she is with this amazing Fast Company cover that it seemed like Mickey had been super supportive of, but then other folks were getting nervous about that, which sounds very human. Like you can both be excited for someone and then also feel like you're not getting credit. Can you talk a little bit about that era? And like, also, what do you think really happened? Because there's a very interesting story about someone from the team sending out a fleet of assistants to go and buy all of the fast companies around the office so that Mickey wouldn't see it, even though he obviously knew what was going on. Okay, so what happened is... Jenna's going to be on the cover of Fast Company. This is a really big deal for her because let's say 2010, Jenna became the president of the company, which was really eyebrow raising for a lot of people in the industry because it was a real church and state offense, really. You didn't put your creatives in charge of running the company. As we said earlier, Jenna has a lot of business sense. It wasn't a totally ridiculous thing, but there was a sense of needing to build her profile in the business world as a legit person to take seriously as more than a creative. And the company had never done better, right? In 2011, 2012, I mean, they're just minting money. And so they booked this cover for her alone without Mickey, you know, and I have been told that Mickey was very instrumental in lining up that cover, that he wanted it to be her big moment. But what I've also been told is that when the issue came out, 
somebody, an executive at J. Crew, sent out like an army of assistants over the island of Manhattan to buy up every issue of Fast Company because it did not want to be seen. <laughs> so for the record, Mickey denies any knowledge of this. And I do think it's possible that there were so many yes men in the organization who were trying to like please him work around him. He's a pretty impetuous guy that like this order was given not by Mickey, but on Mickey's behalf. Regardless, it happened in the digital era. Buying up a bunch of magazines doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's out there in the culture. But okay. I think that this is just a really big indicator that things had gone south. There were people in the company long before Mickey started to question Jenna who were questioning the wisdom of promoting Jenna, who had, in addition to being very famous, she had very refined upscale taste, beautiful taste, but perhaps was pulling J. Crew like further upscale than the brand really needed to be in its ideal setting, right? And Mickey, who enjoyed, I think, the glamour of that and the success of that, was happy to go along. And there were business people inside the company saying, let's pump the brakes. People come to us for their t-shirts and their chinos, right? That's our bread and butter. It's not like $3,000 collection sequined jackets, right? Like that's not what people were going to J. Crew for. And so I think the Fast Company episode is just to me like a real indication that inside the bonds were starting to break mm -hmm. and a thing that had been like really seamless was not as seamless. It's all... So fascinating. And one of the things you write about is the fact that like the public at large was fixating on like, what are they doing with these $3,000 jackets when it was like 4% of the business or something very, very small. Right. And I think there's also that American thing of we want folks who we admire to evolve, but we don't want them to evolve too much. And we don't want them to suddenly seem like better than they are, mm -hmm. then I can't help but feel like there's probably something in that like American ethos of like, oh, no, she's getting too close to the sun. She's going to Solange's wedding and looking mighty fabulous. Like maybe we're not OK with this. Well, and also, especially when it's a woman running a company, yeah. right? Yeah. No one is as appealing a target as a woman in charge of a company somehow. But I do think that when you start reading the comments of the customers, there was so much ire having to do with insiders versus outsiders, like popular girls versus unpopular girls, right? Mm -hmm. So much of the ire directed at Jenna felt to me like underpinned by lunchroom dynamics, right? Yep. Like, who does she think she is? And who does she think we are? We're paying the bills around here. We're buying these clothes. We're regular people. We don't go to art parties and we don't paint our son's toenails pink. Who does she think she is selling clothes to us? To me, it felt like there was a red state, blue state thing happening because they're trying to dress America. And that's yeah. a big and varied swath, as we know. But then there's also like a resentment, like everybody loved Jenna as long as she fit inside this box mm -hmm. of like being the pretty, aspirational, straight woman living in a Brooklyn brownstone that everybody wanted her couch. There's like degrees of aspiration that we're comfortable with. The Brooklyn existence was like, just enough of a lift for us to feel like that's intriguing, but I could also buy those same chairs in my dining room. 
And then once she's like this Manhattan figure on the scene who isn't really wearing a lot of visible J. Crew, there's a piece that's like, yeah, she's gone too far. Exactly what you said. So ridiculous. And yes, there's also sexism and homophobia and a bunch of other things baked into all of this as well. For sure. I also think it's, you know, you bring up the red state, blue state of it all, but it's also such an interesting moment in time, certainly circa that 2016 moment, because J. Crew is associated with prep and the concept of preppiness. And that is like a very American and very specific look and vibe that has been both aspirational and parodied and feared, and it signals a lot of things. I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of context around the way that the idea of preppiness has evolved over the years. Well, sure. I mean, prep evolved mainly on college campuses of the Ivy League in like the 20s and 30s and 40s. And by the 50s, it was really crystallized and it went mass, but it never lost those associations of the leisure uniform of the elite. And those are the origins. I mean, there's no shaking that. And so Skipping forward to now, there are so many brands that are doing interesting things sort of with a knowing wink to where Preppy comes from, right? As a sort of sidebar off of that, one of the things that struck me as funny, the whole time I was reporting J. Crew, a book which, P.S., I sold with the title The Kingdom of Prep. And when I would tell people who worked at J. Crew that this was the title, they hated that title. Everybody at J. Crew hates that title. Sorry, J. Crew people. But it's because they never thought they were making Preppy. Yet every article ever written about J. Crew has been fronted by America's preppy retailer, J. Crew. When J. Crew declared bankruptcy in 2020, it was America's preppy retailer. Like that is its identity in the culture. But people don't want to lay claim to being preppy because either they think they're cooler than preppy, they think they're not as elitist as what preppy implies. It's not a baggage that people are really eager to claim. Lily Pulitzer wrote the foreword to a book about preppy, and even Lily Pulitzer was like, I'm not really preppy. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> if you're not preppy, like, who is? Mm -hmm. But so I love Tressie McMillan Cottom at the New York Times. Like, I love everything she writes. Did you read the story she wrote about the enduring invisible power of blonde hair? No. It's so good. I mean, I, for one, spend a lot of money trying to make my hair look blonder than it naturally is. So, like, let me own up to that. But it's like trying to force people to deal with the baggage inherent in this thing that they want. I just I have to read her quote because Please. it just totally sums up how I feel about prep. She writes, most of us hate the idea that whom we are attracted to has any political context. We hate thinking that the things we enjoy mean anything. I'm paraphrasing her a little bit there. That is the thing about status. We all want it, but should we acquire it, we don't want it to mean anything. We don't want to feel bad about having status, but that's not how status works. So, I mean, this is how I feel about prep. It's like, I wear some preppy clothes and you probably wear some preppy clothes, mm -hmm. but there's so much baked into that and we have to acknowledge it. And there were so many people I spoke with who were just like, mm -mm, we're just not preppy. That's not what we are. I'm like, eh, I hate to tell you. That is fascinating. So I am curious about the most surprising thing that you learned while working on this book, something that's really stayed with you through the process. 
Yeah. I mean, on a really personal note, I learned a lot about how to write a book, (laughs) which is not probably what you're asking about, but like was to me pretty profoundly different from anything I'd ever done. And now I have to write another one, if only to put that to use, because it's like planning your wedding, where you learn how to like throw a party for 200 people, and then you never throw another party for 200 people. But I think a lot of what I have actually thought about so much is work culture, some of what you asked me about before. Like in the middle of like the great resignation and no one goes to work anymore, I feel like what I really spent the time when that was happening in the world, like really immersed in a company that had a very defined work culture. And I came from a company because I worked at L for 13 years where I loved going to work and I loved my colleagues. You know, I just think corporate culture and corporate fashion culture gets such a bad rap. But when I was interviewing these 100 people, almost everyone was driven by real passion for what they were doing. They didn't love every single thing about working. Nobody does. They loved the brand. They believed in the brand. Like They were trying to make a great thing. And it wasn't just because they were cogs in a corporate wheel. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the big takeaway there is, but I always really loved being part of a brand when I was a part of Elle, and I really believed in it, and I let it define me to a probably false extent. When I left there, I felt like completely lost without it, but I feel like that kind of thinking is really poo-pooed today, and I think people are missing out because they're not allowing themselves to believe that their work can be something that they really love being a part of. To that point, it's like, Everyone wants to belong to something, right? To be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. I mean, that's just human nature to some extent. But then there's also this American individualism, like no company cares about you. Focus on your career and like get out there and get it. And I can see both sides of it. It's like, of course, what have the last 20 years taught everyone? It's like, don't depend on a company because they'll cast you aside because they have to or because they want to. So I understand why people are so like, it's just about me. But as someone who also came up at Elle and who knows the incredible power of that community Mm -hmm. and vision and still is friendly with so many people, it's like I think anything that inspires connection and community and some of that like higher calling in terms Mm -hmm. of work, like that's really special. And it's also rare. So when you have it, know that it's unique. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. so. My last question is, I'm curious about the fact that the title doesn't say fall, it says near fall of J. Crew. I'm wondering what you thought the saving graces were when you were reporting things out. And now, as we stand here in 2023, how you think that's going? Because from the who, what, where perspective, our audience can't get enough J. Crew right now. Everyone is obsessed with Olympia. People are talking about J. Crew in a new way. I'm shopping it in a new way and have been for the better part of, I would say, close to a year. Mm-hmm. But I also realize that that's pretty new. So I'm curious from your perspective how that tide has shifted a little bit and then also what you think saved the company at the end of the day. Is it all of this positive sentiment that everyone's had? Is it the fact that we like a comeback story? Is it the fact that everyone loves a mall brand all of a sudden again? Like, why is there a renaissance? I, too, have been shopping J. Crew. In fact, there's a little baggie on my bed in the other room that has a pair of jeans that I bought because Olympia was wearing them on Instagram. 
So like, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. I feel like what really saved the company has nothing to do with the trends and the people who are working there. And it has to do with the fact that they refinanced after going bankrupt. Yeah. I mean, like I was two months into writing this book, not even a month when J. Crew went bankrupt. And I was like, oh, is this a retrospective book? <laughs> like, What are we dealing with here? And everybody thought they were just going to vanish. I mean, mainly because most people don't understand, like me at the time, don't understand what bankruptcy means. But they got out from under that debt. That's why they still exist today. And it's why they have the freedom to reinvest in these new designers and these new designs that we're all liking is because they're not servicing this insane debt. They hired some really great people. And I think the clothes are good. I don't have a crystal ball and I never claim to. But like... I think that J. Crew could be very successful again, but I really question whether any brand can be what J. Crew once was, which to my mind is this emblematic American label. I'm not saying everybody loved it. I'm not saying it represented us as a whole. But if you were going to say, like, what's American, you would probably have said J. Crew at one point, or a certain class of people would have said J. Crew at one point. Let me be really clear. And I don't think they can be that again. I don't think anybody's trying to be that again. Maybe being what they used to be and trying to be everything to everyone is where they went wrong in the first place. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. And more importantly, thank you for making such a fascinating, beautifully researched, so well-written book. It's just a delight on so many levels. And I can't tell you how much I adore it. Thank you. A huge thank you to journalist, author, and co-founder of The Spread, Maggie Bullock. Make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, I'd also be so grateful if you would rate and review us. If you have any guest suggestions or any other feedback, drop us a line at podcast at whowhatwhere.com or you can find us on social at whowhatwhere. See you next Wednesday on Who What Where with Hillary Kerr. This episode was produced by Hillary Kerr and Olivia Capaletti. Editing is by Natalie Thurman. Our audio engineers are at Treehouse Recording in Los Angeles, California, and our music is by Jonathan Leahy. Hold up. 